This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Joining me in the studio, now that we have all been vaccinated, so great to have you guys back it's in. It's good to be back. Great to be back. <laughs> So the Republican Party holds on to State Senate District 22 after a special election to fill now Congresswoman Stephanie Bice's old seat. Licensed minister and former personal trainer Jake Merrick beat Molly Uden by 3,500 votes. Neva, your thoughts on Merrick's win? Well, first of all, every special election, you, you don't, you don't uh, uh, give any sway to the possibility that uh, anything can happen. It's based on turnout. It's based on a lot of factors. Every election is, but specials with lower turnout, um, other things on the ballot uh, like we saw uh, in this particular race, it, it made it very interesting. You look at the demographics, though. I mean, handicapping the race, everyone believed it was the Republican, uh, the Republicans to uh, maintain the seat, just given the fact that there's a two-to-one um, ratio of Republicans over the Democrats. But but the Democrats mounted a, a hard campaign. They raised money, had a candidate that uh, worked hard. So um, and they were they were thinking back to 2017 when uh, when they flipped for Republican-held uh, uh, legislators legislative seats uh, in special elections. So uh, this was one where uh, this seat, I think a lot of folks uh, kind of dubbed it as an Edmund seat, but really it's an Edmund Yukon or Canadian mm-hmm. County, Oklahoma County seat. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, spread, a lot of diversity in terms of the, uh, uh, the communities and the outreach. So I think in this instance, uh, Merrick uh, won co- with a commanding uh, 3,500 vote uh, uh, margin. So he's now going to be, uh, as of today, uh, 5 o'clock on Friday, votes Mm -hmm. are certified. So then we will, uh, I think, anticipate that we will see him sworn in sometime as early as Wednesday of next week. And he will fulfill this term, but he'll have to run for a full term next year. So uh, he's he's going to have just a little time on the ground in the end of this session. And then uh, um, all I think uh, the expectation is like with any seat, uh, you've got to get prepared that you may have a Republican primary as well as a, as a general election in, in uh, 22. So um, I think no no big surprises, but uh, that's that's where this race finds finally stood. Yeah, even less time than a state representative. Uh, Ryan, the Democrats really thought they might have been able to take this one. Well, and that's, you know, like Neva said, you know, based upon past experience in 2017 with some special elections there that you know, kind of defied the odds. I mean, this would have defied the odds. This wasn't, you know, uh, this was a difficult seat to win, but in a special election, whenever turnout is so unpredictable uh, and you have the ability to kind of try to build your own universe of turnout, um, you know, with your get out the vote effort, you know, your phone calls, knocking on doors. You know, I, I follow Molly Uten on Twitter, and just about every night there's pictures of her and her supporters out knocking on doors, talking to voters. And that's an important part of this campaign in, in overall Oklahoma County, uh, Canadian County uh, politics is building capacity for the Democratic Party. Uh, the Democrats, if they're going to see you know, federal election wins like they saw with Kendra Horn in the 5th District, uh, back in 2018, if you're going to see you know, county commissioner seats flip, uh, you know, these countywide elections, even though you might not win those precincts, uh, building capacity, mm-hmm. getting voters uh, in your voter file, uh, being able to outreach, uh, do outreach to them immediately, get them engaged in campaigns, 
that's an important legacy that the Uten campaign has left there. Uh, and like uh, Neva said, you know, Molly didn't just you know raise money; she raised more money uh, than Jake Merrick did, mm-hmm. which is kind of a an interesting thing. Most of the time, you know, Democrats are being outraised by Republicans, and here it was the other way around. I think that you know, looking at the last campaign finance reports, they both left a little uh, little gas in the in the tank on on their funding and. Because on, on a deal like this, it's really a ground game. You can have all the mail pieces in the world, uh, all the phone calls in the world, but it's really knocking on doors and getting people out to the polls. This is one of the first campaigns that we've seen at the tail end of the pandemic where door knocking and, and, and you know door-to-door canvassing mm-hmm. is starting to look a little bit more like it used to. Uh, yeah. So that was an interesting dynamic of this as well. You know, Neva mentioned possible Republican primaries. Jake Merrick, uh, soon to be Senator Merrick, uh, will be... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he fits in with Senate leadership. If you recall, he had a Republican primary where he ran against the candidate that was the preferred pick of Senate leadership. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at his campaign finance reports, they've you know, made they've made good on that, and they, Senate leadership came back around to support him. But it'll be interesting to see how he fits in with Senate leadership, and then how that might uh, determine whether or not he has a primary next year or not. With multiple local elections across the state, were there any others you guys were watching? Well, the, you know, the Paul Lewis, uh, you know, who re- won re-election to the Oklahoma City uh, uh, School Board as mm-hmm. the chairperson there, that was an incredibly tight race. Uh, I haven't seen spending numbers on that yet, but there was a lot of independent spending there. I had a lot of folks knocking on my doors. Uh, my, my own state, Senator Julia Kurt came and knocked on my door wow. and, and asked, asked me for a vote for Paul Lewis. Uh, and, you know, so people were out, you know, really driving, uh, you know, and, and, on, and the Charles Henry camp as well. You know, really campaigning in this race. It was a hard-fought race, um, and you know, Paul Lewis won it. You know, very in a by a very narrow margin. Neva, was there something you were watching? Well, it was interesting in Edmond because you had uh, you had races for school board, city council, a mayor's race, as well as this state senate race we just talked about. And the the interesting twist in in those elections was the fact that there was a liberty ticket. I mean, these nonpartisan races, but we had a a ticket that basically uh, had a mayor candidate, school board, city council uh, folks, and were supporting Jake Merrick. Uh, that was part of that uh, mm-hmm. part of that ticket, but it was mixed in terms of the results because in the mayor's race, which was an open open seat, mm-hmm. I mean, we had uh, Daryl Davis uh, winning very convincingly 62% of the vote, someone that had been on the, the city council for 10 years. Uh, he will be the first African-American uh, to uh, hold uh, the mayor's office in, in Edmond when, uh, next month when he's sworn in. But th- it, this was an interesting race because it was all across the board. The idea that you could have a ticket that would have enough momentum that everyone that that was being kind of uh, touted in this group would just either all go in and win or all would lose it was it was mixed and i think that again goes back to the ground game it goes back to the qualifications it goes back to what voters are looking for individually in these races and what they believe is best in the particular seat that uh, that they're voting on uh, so i thought that was fascinating and, and i think across the board when you think about 73 of the 77 counties having elections uh, and mm-hmm. the fact that once again these types of elections had a um, 
had abysmal turnouts. I mean, that they they uh, it, handfuls of voters. I mean, in races where we're talking folks that are in positions that have great responsibility. And I think again, it speaks to the education of the whole electorate uh, in Oklahoma and the seriousness. And and it does kind of play into this uh, argument at the Capitol right now of trying to change when these elections take place and putting them on a November ballot or or putting them on uh, another election cycle where they might have uh, more participation. Obviously, that also means it's going to cost more money and be more competitive in that in that regard. But um, it, it's always disappointing to see these seats uh, and and the competition. Even though we saw more, even uh, I think uh, long-term incumbents in all of these uh, school board, mm-hmm. uh, city councils across the board being challenged or having folks that you know stepped up and are, were were willing to run, but we didn't see the participation at the voting booth. Yeah, I mean, I saw I you know watched Seminole County returns, and you look at school board elections here, hundreds of people, uh, hundreds of people. You know, I I remember you know way back when the the only other politician in my family is my dad. He ran for city council, uh, and he served in city council in Seminole for for uh, several terms and. Uh, was you know, quite the contrarian. Lo- a lot of good stories there. Uh, but I, I th- you know, he lost his last election by like you know four votes out of like you know twelve cast or something. You know, yeah. you know these these races don't attract a lot of attention. And you know, thinking of solutions to get more people engaged so that there are more voices that determine who make these really big decisions, whether it's school board or city council or, or you you name it. Yeah. Lawmakers are working on legislation to undo a resolution by the State Board of Education. As we talked about last week, the SBE decided by a narrow margin to settle a lawsuit to effectively give charter schools the same amount of public funding as other schools. Senate Bill 229 passed unanimously out of the House Common Education Committee on Tuesday. Ryan, what does this bill do? Well, I think it does something that we kind of telegraphed last year, last week here on the show, which was to try to come up with a legislative solution that would moot the litigation that is is already happening and may even expand further uh, over the SBE's decision uh, to settle this case by taking money out of uh, the state, you know, the state, uh, the state funding formula to put into brick and mortar and possibly you know, online virtual schools. Uh, that's um, that's what we've seen with the Senate bill. You know, this is, you know, the, the bill's author himself said, this is a long way from a finished product. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of negotiation over this. Um, but I do think that the legislature uh, has a real vested interest in, you know, you know, heading off the litigation. The litigation itself, you know, what the court ultimately decides, uh, you know, what the, S- what the state, uh, what SBA may, uh, the state uh, board of virtual uh, and charter schools, what they may ultimately decide, that's all unpredictable. And lawmakers want some predictability here. Uh, and this is kind of a, you know, a, a compromise where they would take money out of medical marijuana revenues, uh, which is interesting. And we, we have a lot of medical marijuana revenue coming into the state of Oklahoma. Current, and some of that is a portion to common ed. Right now, uh, the medical marijuana revenue coming in accounts for about $4 million a month that's deposited into the common ed coffers. That's, that's a lot of money. Um, and so taking that money to put into brick and mortar charter schools, uh, but not to virtual schools, that would be the intent of this bill. I mean, we'll see how that ultimately plays out. I would remind our listeners that medical marijuana itself isn't a revenue generation tool. Right. Uh, it's just kind of worked out that way in Oklahoma because we have so many licensees. It's adult use marijuana that we've seen in other states that generates a huge revenue that can be pumped into things like healthcare and common ed and, and infrastructure. Uh, but you know, here 
in Oklahoma, we have this fortune. Uh, for, we're fortunate for the time being, at least. We've got a lot of this money that's available. Whether that money is available over the long term, uh, as OMA expands its ability to do regulation and its mission, um, that remains to be seen. Neva. Well, and I think, you know, in talking to some lawmakers, I mean, it seems like uh, <clears throat> with this existing medical marijuana tax that uh, this is the time if they're going to start making changes and they're going to use some of those funds uh, uh, with respect to what we're talking about uh, uh, with the, the brick and mortar on charter schools, that this is the time. And and you're right, Ryan. I mean, I think the, the figure that I heard, the $42 million, uh, in taxes uh, last year, when you break that down, 12 million, 12 million went to the general fund, and then they had about almost 30 million that was left that went to uh, uh, the administrative side for the uh, medical marijuana authority. I think about 25, 26 million, mm-hmm. and then the remaining part went to uh, drug and alcohol rehab. So, so there's some money there. Whether it's that 12 million, you know, whatever the floating number would be, and it would it would continue to increase based on you know what you just described as the monthly uh, inflow, Ryan. That uh, that there would be these funds available and I think and I think the other thing that uh, that we're seeing the conversation uh, coming about is that the blended learning centers uh, right now uh, that they that there appears to be a move on to make sure that they don't get any uh, of these funds I mean that they're not brick and mortar uh, they are attached to uh, uh, a university so um, so I think there's, as you described, lots of give and take. It's a moving target. A bill a title was struck on the bill. They're going to have to work through a lot of sticking points. But this will be an interesting way, I think, to uh, fashion something that addresses a problem that, as uh, as uh, Representative Hilbert said, dropped in their lap unexpectedly. This is one of those things that happen in a in a swift moving session where uh, you have things come up as as we see in Senate Bill 229. Yeah. And Neva, the, the number you said, 12.6 million in fiscal year 20, state, uh, that, that went in, that was medical marijuana revenue that went into the Common Ed Fund, uh, they hit that number, that 12 million number, they hit that in February of this year. We still got several months yeah. left in the, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. In, in the fiscal year for, for 2021. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's, there's, there's going to be money there. Right. Uh, now, again, and I think that that, num- that number continues to increase, and it's going to be a big number that's deposited into Common Ed. But I do think that at some point, OMA, as they expand their regulatory efforts, they're going to take more of that. And the medical marijuana revenue that comes in, the, the first uh, bite at the apple there goes to regulatory uh, efforts by OMA and enforcement efforts by OMA and making sure that uh, patients in Oklahoma have safe, reliable products they could be confident in. Yeah. Uh, the statewide virtual charter school board sets a trial for Epic next month. The contract termination proceedings will move forward May 12th through the 13th, as the members also voted to deny Epic's motion to dismiss the termination proceedings altogether. Neva, what do we expect to happen here? Well, um, it, it's, it continues to change. As, as we uh, talked about earlier in the year, there were hearing dates that were set in uh, January, then in March. Mm-hmm. Both were canceled. Uh, so, I mean, this is an ongoing legal um, a legal maneuvering on on all on the side of both parties and I think that uh, ultimately I mean whether it's May or whether it's the fall or when it happens I mean this is something that is going to it's going to take its course and I think that the efforts to uh, just um, dismiss this uh, and make it go away clearly does not appear to be the case and not likely to happen so we'll just have to wait and see what happens uh, uh, with respect to the May 12th and 13th uh, dates that have been set for the trial.
Ryan. You know, I, I think the biggest surprise of this is that we thought um, on, on this program, as we've talked about this trial that was going to happen, was whether or not the trial would happen in the context of the legislature considering reforms uh, in response to the state auditor's report on EPIC. Uh, I think that at the outset of this legislative session, my biggest surprise out of this entire legislative session is the just the almost total silence on legislation directly uh, uh, answering or responding to the auditor's report on EPIC and virtual schools in general. I mean, I thought that we'd see a lot of legislation dealing with transparency, accountability, and oversight, um, uh, and we just haven't seen that. And so now, and we thought earlier, you know, one of my speculations was they want to push this trial out so that the trial itself doesn't happen during a legislative session that's also dealing with this issue. Um, you know, so you know, maybe they would push it to June mm -hmm. uh, or July. Uh, and that didn't happen. They're going to have this trial. It'll be in May uh, in while well, the legislature's in it's session. It's a couple weeks before but, the session ends. But yeah. the legislature's not dealing with this, yeah. really, at least directly the way that I anticipated that they would. So that's interesting. I think the two-day period that they've given for the trial uh, is short. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's... You're, you, if you look at the state auditors and inspectors report, uh, if you sit down and just read that word for word, page for page, I think that that takes you two days uh, just to get through that. <laughs> just, it's a yeah. long report. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of evidence here. There's a lot to be considered. Um, and, and I know that everybody kind of just wants to get past this, uh, but limiting it to two days, I hope that my hope is, is that uh, they're probably going to get you know, halfway through or a third of the way into day two. Uh, and I think that the, the members of the board are going to realize we need to extend this, yeah. and they're going to give the parties some more time to, to present their cases. And I think from a legislative perspective, you have to assume that, that they are taking a step back and pause and wait because of the complexity that you just described. I mean, not only in the auditor's report, but the fact that, uh, that every single item in that report is being refuted uh, mm -hmm. with uh, mm -hmm. evidence or documents, of uh, their case, uh, that they're beginning to build uh, on, on the EPIC side uh, against all of those uh, points that were made by the auditor and inspector. So it has a long process to go through and to to try to look at that uh, kind of as a, uh, from the back of the room view and then make legislative, uh, uh, let, take legislative action, I, in my mind, would be premature. And I think yeah. that's what we're seeing is a wait and see on the part of uh, on the part of these lawmakers. And maybe putting it here, they would actually still have two weeks to do something. It's a short amount of time, but I've seen legislature. Uh, they legis have two weeks. They have a, a, a special session that's already been called <laughs> right. for September uh, to, to ostensibly just to deal with redistricting. But we have to anticipate that the door may be open to many other conversations and, and legislative action. So, and, and the, the session next year so this is not a conversation that is going to go away it's going to be an ongoing conversation just like education common ed mm -hmm. higher ed these uh, these discussions will go on with every session uh, in into uh, into the future and I think in this instance uh, we've just uh, I think we've seen so much uh, uh, so much conversation on it that people there's a little bit of fatigue I think from the outside view of just wh why is this still going on why haven't why haven't you all uh, gotten to the bottom of it and fixed it. The Oklahoma County Board of Commissioners approves allowing the sheriff to contract with a video production company to film a reality television series. The one-year contract allows good caper content to film employees doing their jobs, including making arrests. Ryan, what do you think about an Oklahoma County Sheriff TV show? I, I think it's deeply regrettable. I, I, I think that these shows, you know, whether it's Cops or Live PD, 
Uh, and, you know, I've watched cops. You know, I, I think we've, we've all seen, you know, it's late at night. You know, there's, there's, a, great, uh, there's a great podcast that examined uh, cops and really dug into the issues of, of, these, uh, of these episodes and talked to the lawyers that were involved, the police officers that were involved, the production teams that were involved, and the, the arrestees, the accused that were involved. Um, and what they found was that these shows are, uh, you know, predatory, they're exploitative, they, demonst- they uh, distort the criminal justice system, they distort the role of law enforcement, uh, they capture people in their most vulnerable moments, um, and, uh, you know, this is, we, just as we're, we're seeing uh, a call to reckon with a lack of police accountability, uh, these shows promote the very kind of police behavior uh, and activity that we're all trying to move away from. I mean, this is two steps back for Oklahoma County. And then if you look at the terms of the contract, uh, we just gave it all away to this production company. All the film, all the audio, all the rights belong to this production company. I mean, we're, we're giving away this, uh, this you know, critical and paramount public service of law enforcement. We're giving away these, uh, the essential elements of it uh, for entertainment. And that's just, uh, again, deeply regrettable. I hope that uh, in, in the coming months that we reconsider this because I'm, I'm afraid that it will uh, set us back in terms of reforms. Uh, and I think that it will probably uh, lead to some um, you know, deeply troubling situations. Neva. Well, and I think your description of, of these shows, I think, is highly accurate. I mean, when we talk about reality TV, that's what we're talking about. I mm-hmm. mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, looking, uh, kind of taking this uh, this look at whatever, you know, whatever part of life is being exposed and, and, uh, and presented out there for folks to see. And let's face it, it has been wildly popular. I mean, Cops was a TV show that's been on for three decades. Um, live TV, when it was uh, abruptly uh, canceled uh, in the wake of uh, the widespread uh, uh, protests after the George George Floyd uh, uh, incident and death, I think I think that we've seen even in Oklahoma. If, if you remember, I mean, uh, uh, Mayor G. T. Bynum in Tulsa. I mean, they immediately moved to uh, cancel. Uh, live PD, you know, mm-hmm. live PD, and uh, that was back in uh, July of 2020. So, so it is, it is something that I think everyone has to step back and uh, and take a serious look at. I mean, when you look at uh, live TV and you look at the ABC uh, um, legal uh, legal analyst and the and the host of Live PD, uh, Dan Abrams. I mean, if you, if you hear his description, I mean, he views it uh, that show in his estimation provided transparency uh, that it uh, gave a real life. Uh, perspective on police work. So there are two sides to the coin, but I think in the age that we're living in um, and just the um, the backdrop that, that we're, you know, that we're viewing all of this from, uh, it does give pause. And I think, uh, I think you're right, Ryan. I think there'll be a lot of pressure um, on the commissioners and on the uh, on uh, production of this particular TV show to see what happens and how it moves forward and whether or not uh, there's, uh, there's any um, um, thinking of pulling it back or doing something different in, in light of all that we've just described. Well, in the, in the podcast that I mentioned, it's called Running from Cops. Uh, you, you can you know, download it when you're downloading the This Week in Oklahoma Politics podcast. Right. Uh, give it a podcast. listen. I think it's, you know, for me, it was it was very informative as to the, the way that that show was actually put together. It's all edited. So, I mean, that's yeah. the problem is how do, you, how do you edit it? And you can showcase either way. So, you know, who knows where they're going to go with it. And I think that's a concern that should be for the county commissioners.
And so the Oklahoma State University Board of Regents approves Casey Shrum, Dr. Casey Shrum, as the 19th president of the college. Shrum will be the first female university president and will replace Burns Hargis, who is retiring after 13 years in the top spot. The announcement came after five hours of deliberation by the board in executive session. Neva, your thoughts on OSU's next leader? Well, I think it's a tremendous uh, dis, uh, selection. I mean, obviously for all of the first, but, but just her track record. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of not only uh, her great success uh, at OSU uh, through the years that she's been there, but just uh, the history of, uh, of her not only career as, a, as an educator, as a, as a doctor, as someone who uh, has a great deal of passion for OSU, being an alum, uh, being an Oklahoman, uh, someone who understands, uh, understands the, uh, uh, the, the not only the higher ed landscape, but the political landscape, and uh, you know, and I think it's a very, uh, a very strong selection among, I'm sure, very strong competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of speculation of who the finalists, uh, the finalists were, and the fact that uh, that they've taken a long deliberative process uh, to uh, find uh, President Hargis's replacement uh, mm -hmm. after uh, after a long time at the helm, 13 years, I believe. So, uh, I wish, uh, I wish uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, the new president, uh, every good uh, success, and I think it's a, uh, a very bright day for the Oklahoma State University. Right. Um, first and foremost, a, a big thanks to President Hargis uh, yeah. for his service at OSU. Uh, being a university president uh, is, I think, one of the most difficult uh, jobs, and, and people want these jobs. I mean, they really do, and they get there, and man, if, if you can last 13 years as the president of a major research university, uh, that is an accomplishment. And to do it uh, with the kind of accolades that, that he has uh, amassed over this time and, and the, like the real uh, benchmarks uh, of, of progress for Oklahoma State during his time as president. You know, a, a really good friend of mine, uh, President Hargrave at, or former President Hargrave at ECU, or, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm from Seminole County, so I call him Johnny Bob. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you talk to Johnny Bob, and I mean, he'll tell you, um, you know, it was, it, uh, and he's had some really hard jobs over his time. He had a partner at a major law firm, mayor of the city of Wewoka. Uh, but then he'll tell you the hardest thing that he's ever done was to run a university. Uh, and, and I think that whenever you're looking for these candidates, uh, universities and these regents have a choice. They can look for outside candidates to bring somebody in and try to shake things up, uh, or you can look for stability. Uh, and I think that that's what Dr. Schramm represents. I think that she's somebody who knows OSU. She knows the students. Uh, she knows the faculty. Uh, she knows the mission. Uh, and has a, a deep understanding of the promise and potential of this university. And I think that that's going to serve her very well. It'll serve the university well. And, you know, hey, if, if OSU, if our two major rate research universities and our, and our other colleges and universities are doing well in Oklahoma, then Oklahoma is doing well. So I wish her all the best. Neva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.